Veterans Day is actually this Wednesday. And we want to say thank you to the men and women who have served our country in this way. The freedoms that we enjoy, that we're actually enjoying right now in this very moment, are not enjoyed by many around the world. And uh, our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, we pray for them and we would seek God's grace for them, but we don't want to take this moment, this time for granted. And in 1 Timothy 2, we're called to pray for our government leaders. And it's fascinating because a part of that prayer request, as we're praying for our government leaders, includes this, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And uh, so in the providence of God, he's placed us in this country at this time where we enjoy this very thing. And as God uses governments to preserve that, he's also used each of you who have served in the military to preserve that and protect it as well. And so we thank the Lord for you. And so it might embarrass you, I know, but I'm going to ask you, if you have served or are serving in the Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, or Air Force, would you please stand up in this moment? And we will thank the Lord for you in that way. And let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer right now, uh, just as God works in this. Lord, uh, we come to you, and, and we thank you for allowing us to uh, be here in this place right now, gathered in this way. And we thank you for uh, the men and women who have served uh, in the military and who are serving there now. And we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, for those that don't know you, Lord, that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you how it's shared greatly amongst uh, the people in those places of work and in that context. We pray especially for gospel chaplains, that there'd be more of them and that they would have a massive impact there for you. Um, but we look to you now and give you thanks for, uh, for the way you have blessed us in many ways. And uh, we thank you for the men and women who have served uh, to, to help even us enjoy this uh, life of living in godliness and dignity in a way that's acceptable to you as, as we live out the gospel here in our country with the freedoms that we have. So we praise you for this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the, one of the sad uh, realities of the culture we live in today is, is that really good parents continually need to warn children about deceivers. And I remember when our son Grant, who is now 25, believe it or not, uh, those of you who have known us for a while, I know it's going fast for all of us, but I remember when he was four or five years old, little guy, and we would go to a local park. And, uh, you know, we always kept him within eyesight. I mean, really, actually, he was probably never farther than maybe eight feet away <laughs> from us right there in the park. By the way, as, the, as we had the next kid, I think with Sophia, it was more like 15 feet uh, with our third kid, Grace, it was like, I know she's at the park here somewhere. No, I'm kidding. We never, we never got to that point. We never, yeah, maybe we did. I don't know. No, we didn't. Uh, but but you know, it, we would always say to him, look, if a stranger comes and talks to you, don't interact. You know, remember, he's a little guy. I'm getting down. You know, beeline it back to me. Okay, Dad. What's a beeline? All right. Run. I want you to run back to me. You know, get back to me as fast as you can. Don't interact. Don't talk. Don't do anything. And of course, as, as kids get a little older, you know, it becomes more nuanced. We, we can't just tell them there's deceivers out there. Now we have to tell them that, you know, those deceivers, they could mean harm for them. And uh, all this is done, of course, in, in wisdom with, you know, age appropriateness, right? Depending on where the kid's at and what they can receive. And, and as time progresses, you know, the, at the right time, kids need to learn 
um, what this idea of coercion is. I think that's actually good to teach kids that word, uh, even at a fairly young age. What, what, you know what coercion means, you know? It, it's someone persuading or tricking you to do something that you don't want to do or you don't think is right. It's someone manipulating you, and it could be by direct threats. It could be more, by, by more subtle means. But here's the thing. As we talk to our kids, if you have any sense that this is wrong, get out, get away, and be sure to talk to us. We love you. We're here for you. And we're going to care for you through this, whatever that means. Um, as they grow older, the, you know, the, the identifying markers might become more specific. If someone drives up to you in a car, get out of there. If a friend tries to talk you into doing something, this, that, or the other, you, maybe, maybe they'll even uh, threaten things like not physical harm, but maybe they're going to threaten to shun you. Realize that that friendship was a mirage the whole time. Uh, and better the sorrow over that kind of a loss of a quote-unquote friend than the sorrow of going against your conscience. But these are all important discussions to have with kids in different ways, at different times, at different levels. And yet it's also so critical, especially for believing parents, that we don't uh, paralyze our kids with fear. Like, we're just, okay, now watch out. Everything out there is out to get you, right? We can get them into that paranoid place. Or, even worse than that, somehow downplay the sovereignty of God, the might and power of the living God. And the way he is at work. And so we, we want to make sure they understand, hey, God's in control and evil has already been defeated and will finally be eradicated when Jesus returns. And so we think, and, and even showing them, you know, the, the greatest evil ever done was the unjust murder of the only innocent man to ever live, Jesus, on the cross. That's the greatest evil that was ever done. And yet God used that great evil, the greatest evil ever, to bring about the greatest good. Namely, the salvation of sinners like you and me. So our kids need to see that. And, and parental warnings are important, especially parental warnings that accompany, are accompanied by gospel confidence. And that's exactly what the Apostle John is doing with us today as we travel through 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 27. Uh, he's warning his spiritual children about false teachers who are coming to deceive them, to coerce them into walking away from the truth of the gospel. And, and the warning he gives is as important and relevant to us today as it was when he penned it 2,000 years ago. So in, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. 
But his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that uh, in this time that you yourself would teach us, that your spirit would take what he's written here in these pages and would meet us right where we are, that you would confront us where we need to be confronted, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would grace us to see things from your perspective, because truly, Lord, your perspective is the only one that really matters. And we ask that you'd help us to, to have confidence because of who you are and what you've done, and that we would live with wisdom and discernment in an evil age. We ask this in Jesus' name, the King. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So the main thrust of what we're looking at today from John is simply this. Beware and be confident. Beware and be confident. But the question is, well, beware of what? Well, the first thing he says is beware of liars. Beware of liars. And, and John opens that warning with this, again, very affectionate phrase, children. Um, he's addressing his readers as children because these are the ones who are part of the family of God. These are the ones who belong to their father, their heavenly father. And these are the ones that he's protecting and warning from this impending danger. Uh, and so he goes on to say it's the last hour. And, and so you're reading that and you're going, wait a minute, it's the last hour? Wow, I was talking with some friends this week, and one of them said, yeah, man, it's been a really long hour then. I mean, think about it. You know, 2,000 years ago, yeah, it's the last hour. Uh, but that, that phrase um, is, is placed there in, 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 within that sentence, in the front portion of the sentence. So he's really trying to emphasize that, and, and he's making this emphatic expression. And, and the last hour really describes the period of time that we're in from uh, when Jesus came, his first coming, and then when he's going to return. So the period in between Jesus' first coming and his return, that is the last hour. And so, yeah, we, we have been here for a while. Um, the last hour is, is what we're in. Um, as we anticipate his return, you've got the, you know, the age that we're in now and the age to come. That's another way the Bible kind of designates those two time frames. Um, the age we're in now we await his return, the age to come, when he returns. That, that encompasses all that God has in the future from uh, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus, the, the righteousness that's going to prevail in the world as he reigns uh, upon the earth. And then after that, there comes the new heavens and the new earth. And, uh, and then John mentions this other, this other one, that the Antichrist is coming. Um, and then he goes, and many Antichrists have come. Uh, the reality is, is when you look throughout the scriptures and you see from the book of Genesis on, there has been a rebellion against God that began when Satan and his, de and his uh, demons uh, rebelled against God and, and there's been this evil power that's been working throughout the universe against God and his purposes ever since then. And the Bible describes uh, this from, from Genesis. We have the flood account where there's all of the, the people on the earth essentially had opposed God's plan and God dealt with that. And that's a part of that, again, opposition. Uh, there was the Tower of Babel. There was um, the ongoing way in which Satan, you know, works in different ways through different nations to, to oppress the people of God. And uh, the original architect of this anti-God agenda, of course, is the devil himself, and he's always been the, the, the main sort of thrust behind this antichrist type of spirit 
the one that you know, energizes then many other antichrists that have come up and gone throughout the, the pages of history. And so uh, the term antichrist really only occurs in John's letters, but we see the Bible address this, this character that's, that's going to come on the scene um, at various times in various ways. So the prophet Daniel, for example, foresaw a human leader who would be satanically energized, who would come to Jerusalem. He would enforce his will. He would exalt himself above all others, all people, all gods. He would uh, bring destruction with him. Uh, the prophet Zechariah also foresaw a future antichrist. This would be an evil shepherd who would be the antithesis to the coming Messiah. Uh, Jesus would unveil the Antichrist and his activities also in, in, uh, in the last days when he described him in the Olivet Discourse. And he refers back actually to the abomination of desolation that Daniel refers to um, in his prophecy. And then Paul describes the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and describes him as the man of lawlessness. So uh, the final Antichrist is going to be, if we kind of take all of what the Bible says and put it all together, he's going to be an imposing, intimidating figure of superior intellect and oratorial skills. He's going to possess a lot of military knowledge. He's going to have a lot of economic expertise. He's going to become the leader of the world. He's going to be so convincing as an ally of Israel. And he's going to sign a, a pact with them to be her protector. And then he's going to turn against them and, and then occupy the throne in the sanctuary that's going to be rebuilt, the rebuilt temple. And, and, and Israel is, is going to find themselves on the opposing end of this powerful world leader uh, who's going to oppress them and try to destroy them. And so through, through the centuries, there's been tons of speculation who's the Antichrist. Uh, typically, whoever's writing it, it's usually whoever they're mad at politically at the time. That's what I've noticed. That's kind of the pattern. So... You know, you go back to Nero and the Roman emperors, they were accused of being the Antichrist. You go, you know, to Napoleon Bonaparte and Mussolini and, and Adolf Hitler. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, you look at some of those characters, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes would be another one, and you realize that these people do kind of have the characteristics that we've just described. You're like, you know, sometimes, not all of them, but a lot of them, they fit. And, and, and uh, I think in part that is true because, you know, the devil also does not know the time or the hour of the end, right? What does Jesus say? Only the Father knows. And so it's very likely the devil has this person waiting in the wings. They're always kind of ready to go, uh, just in case that's the time. And, uh, and so, again, you know, with, with Hitler, or with Antiochus Epiphanes, you could see that very clearly. Um, but to have that kind of speculation, that's really a futile thing to do. I actually remember uh, years ago, I think it was back in the 80s, in a Christian bookstore, and uh, right next to the Christian potpourri, you know, over here was a line of, of books, right, you know? And, and a lot of them had, you know, those different kind of predictions going on. I think Saddam Hussein was supposed to be the Antichrist, right, at that time. Um, because, again, it's always whatever's happening. And so we need to be careful with that and wise. Let's stick to what the Bible says and what we know. And uh, the speculative stuff is, is not always helpful. So when, when John wrote this letter, uh, even then, it had been about 60 years uh, since Pentecost, and from his vantage point, countless antichrists had risen through that time. Why? Well, because anti means against, and Christ is Christ. So these are people who are either against Jesus, or uh, you could use anti there as uh, taking the place of, would be the idea. So it could be someone who opposes Christ, or someone who tries to take the place of Jesus. That's literally what the term means. And there have been countless numbers of them, and there will be many more. And uh, in our day and age, there are plenty 
of antichrists running around, those who oppose Jesus or those who want to take the place of Jesus. So he's warning his children, spiritual children, and, and really the question becomes, well, okay, how do, you, how do you know a liar, a deceiver, when you see one? And he gives uh, several different descriptors here. Uh, one would be this. You know them because they depart rather than remain. You find that in verses 18 and 19 when he, when he uh, says that these antichrists, they went out from us, but they weren't really of us. And, that, and that's a wordplay. You know, out from us because they weren't fr- of us. That's the picture. That's how you know. They leave. Um, not always right away. They don't always leave right away, but eventually they depart. They leave the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and if, you've, if you're new in the Lord, if you've just come to Jesus recently, you know, I, I, it can be kind of like, really? Is that really going to happen? Sadly, the more years you are walking with the Lord, you see this, don't you? I mean, I, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for the past several decades, I would imagine many could just think right off the top of your head of several people that you know of that have walked away from the faith. They've left. It's heartbreaking. Uh, we see the same thing in sort of, you know, the, the kind of Christian scene at large. Um, you know, Josh Harris is probably an example of that. If you're not aware of him, I don't know that you have to be totally aware of him, frankly, but uh, if you w- were aware of him, you know he wrote a lot of, a lot of books and, and he was well-published and well-regarded and then he uh, went off to um, kind of gather his thoughts in a seminary setting and decided he was going to deconstruct and from there he's abandoned the faith. So it happens. And, and that's one of the signs that you, you know a liar. Um, they, don't, they don't remain. They, they depart instead. There's another thing that we see also, and that is that they deny rather than confess Christ. Uh, and that's in verses 22 and 23. Notice he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And that's key. Why? Because there were several teachers in that time and that place that were saying something like this. Well, Jesus, yeah, he was, he was great and all that, but the Christ came upon him at his baptism, and then the Christ left him at the cross. And so if you actually look into some of the Gnostic Gospels, and I wouldn't recommend that you do that, but Gnosticism, which, as we've said before, most likely John is addressing some sort of pre-Gnostic kind of heresy, uh, there's, there's a section there where Jesus is actually hanging on the cross and the Christ is on a nearby tree branch mocking him as he dies. Again, it's satanic, it's demonic, but that's, that's the concept. And, and of course, several things have come since then. You know, uh, the New Age movement back in, when that was super popular, um, we used to call it the Old Age movement because it's not very new, but the whole idea was, again, this Christness came upon Jesus and then left him. Um, it's denying who Christ really is. And so here, rather than confess Christ, they would, they would deny him. It's, it's about him, his person, who he is. And, and uh, you know, who's, who's the liar, he says here, um, if it's not the one who denies Jesus? And, and really, the, the language here is more along the lines of, if this denier is not a liar, then no one is. Like, if there's ever a liar, it's going to be someone who desecrates what the Bible teaches as Jesus' person and his work. Uh, if you look throughout church history, you know, all those different Christological, they'd call them heresies. There are all kinds of them. There's Arianism. Um, 
There was Serinthianism, possibly what's being addressed here in the early forms of it. There's all these isms, and, and these councils got together and like, no, we've got to really be clear about this, because that's where the enemy wants to attack, and he still does. And so we have this warning of, of, of you can tell a liar, you can see them. And, and you can see them especially by the way they treat Jesus. And we do see the same thing today, don't we? I mean, think about how many kinds of Jesuses there are out there available to you. Um, you can just pick and choose. Uh, there's Mormon Jesus. There's Muslim Jesus. There's Hindu Jesus. There's Jehovah's Witness Jesus. There's Prosperity Jesus. There's Casual Homeboy Jesus. There's Positive Encouraging Jesus. There's Negative Discouraging Jesus. And when people talk about this, they're all taking sort of a part of what Jesus is like, and they're emphasizing that, or bringing that forward, or holding on to that, and they're downplaying other parts. Because it's only the Jesus of the Bible that is the real, historical, biblical Jesus. Christ the Messiah. And that's who we've got to hold to. And so many people say, well, you know what? We all worship the same God. We just disagree about Jesus. And John just snuffs that idea right off the bat because he says very clearly, yeah, well, here's the thing. If you deny the Son, guess who you're denying? The Father. You can't be selective. You can't just pick and choose. And, and if anyone's going to deny the Son... They've got to realize something. They don't have the Father at all. And if you hold to the Son as revealed in Scripture, the truth, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, if you hold to that, then you have the Father as well. But you can't separate them. You can't believe in God and not believe in the biblical Jesus. And, and that's important because, again, people get selective in sophisticated ways sometimes. You know, there's also the academic distant Jesus. You go to any university and you study, you know, comparative religions, and it's sort of like, well, we'll, we'll study about Jesus, and back then, those people believed in that, and we're going to study them and the ramifications of their teacher and whatever it would be. And, uh, and now, all of a sudden, it's distant. It's sort of a distant academic treatment, but it's not a personal submission to and walk with Christ himself. And, uh, and you know, there's the the kind of sociological studies that come out of that academic realm, right? So I don't need to believe in the Jesus who, who made us, who created us, and, and when it comes to sex and gender, I can define those things for myself. I don't need to look at him and his objective truth in that. I can just believe in the Jesus that enhances my life. He's, like, he's kind of like an accessory. You know, I've got my iPhone, and i got a little Jesus. i got a cool case for my iPhone, and I've got some, some cool way of referring to this Jesus that it ends up I've created in myself. And, and how do you know that? How, how do you know you're doing that? Well, one of the things is this. If you've created Jesus for yourself, he's never going to confront your life. He's always going to agree with you. Why? Because you made him. He doesn't push you. He doesn't confront you. He doesn't call you to the place of going, wait a minute, I need to recognize what's happening here in my life and repent and turn from this. No, instead, it's just going to be, you're just affirmed in what you're doing and, and who you are. And by the way, if you happen to run into something that you don't like, you just eliminate that part. Take it away. 
You can change Jesus's. You got a new phone, got a new Jesus. And you just move on. And that's what can very easily happen. The reality is if we're creating our own Jesus, if we're kind of massaging this thing into a shape that we like to see, you're actually living with a Jesus that's going to lie to you because he's something you've constructed for yourself. He will lie to you because, in essence, he's a lie. But when we follow the historical Jesus of the Bible, we become convicted of sin. We see our need to repent. We see our need to repent often. Like Peter. Remember when Peter was uh, out there and Jesus says, let down your net, and, and, and Peter's like, okay, Lord, I know you're, you know, the Lord, but I'm a fisherman. Hello? I know what I'm doing. But for your sake, okay, I'll do it. And he lets down the net on the opposite side of the boat, and they bring in a haul of fish that they can't even hardly bring in. The boat was practically sinking. And he goes back to shore and he realizes he had not seen Jesus for who he really is. And he bows down before him and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinner. I love what Jesus does. He he says to him, hey, get up, you're not... I'm not going anywhere, neither are you. And you know what? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Uh, I've come in grace to forgive repentant sinners. And not only that, I'm going to restore you to myself. I'm restoring you to my Father. And not only that, I'm using you. I'm using you to impact the people I've placed in your life, those around you. So the real Jesus, there's real hope. There's conviction, but let's remember something. It's not just conviction and you're just left there in the dirt. It's conviction that he uses in your life to show you your need for him and then he lavishes grace upon you. And in that moment when you're bowed down, he takes his palms and cups your face in his hands and he says, my child, you are forgiven by grace. And now, I've got plans for you. Follow me. So how do you know a liar? Well, a liar is not going to go anywhere near that stuff. The liar is going to depart rather than remain. The liar is going to deny rather than confess Christ. And And thirdly, they're also going to deceive rather than receive truth. We find that in verse 26. Notice what he says. These things I've written to you concerning those who were trying to deceive you. Uh, This is an ongoing kind of uh, term that's being used here. So it's not like it's something that's happened in the past. No, instead, it's something that they tried before and they're continuing to try. And they haven't been successful, but they're not going to give up. They're in the process of making the attempt. And so you've got to be aware. You know, it's possible for believers to be deceived by false teachers. It can happen. That's what's implied here. And yet, it's also true that God's given us his word. God's written the truth to us so that we would not fall for that. That's why he's writing. 
There's active deception on the prowl, but you don't have to fall for it. You don't. Instead, you can actually be discerning, you can be aware. But notice that we're not left here. John actually goes on. He's calling us not just to beware, but he's also calling us to be confident. And what is it to be confident? It's it's really to be confident in God's ongoing safeguards for us. Most of all, to be confident in Christ. That's where we find that confidence. But why? Well, because he has, in Christ, he's given us several safeguards. First would be this. He's, you have the truth. If you're a believer today here in Jesus, if you have someone who's received Christ by faith, you have the truth. You've got it. By the way, if you're someone here today and you have not yet come to Christ by faith, you just understand, you right now are being deceived. You're, you're living a lie. You're denying reality. And the invitation to you would be to turn to him today, to believe, to trust him, to know what it means to have your sins cast away as far as east is from the west, to know what it means to be restored, to, to know God, the one who made you. And we would just call on you. If you're here today in person, if you're with us online, uh, this is that moment to turn to him and trust him. But if you're a believer, you need to realize something. You've got, you have the truth. The, the enemy is really good at trying to sell you something you've already got. He did the same thing with our parents in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? When he, when he, when he said, said or, uh, he, God's afraid that you're going to become like him. You'll know good and evil. And, and then the, it's kind of like, oh, wait, yeah, to be like God. That'd be something. Hey, newsflash. You've been made in the image of God. You are his representative. You are, you are the visible manifestation of his greatness and power and glory. You are called to live in that way. You are bearing his image, and in that way, you are like him. You have the truth. You already have it. You don't need someone coming along saying, Psst, hey, you, come out to the back alley. I got new truth for you. You know, that's not, that's not it. It's not how it works. And when you think about it, there's, there's several major ways you can know something's true. The first way is, is reason. You can reason to understand things. Um, you can understand things mathematically. You know, two plus two actually is four. You know, and reason is a gift from God. The scientific method, you realize that it was pioneered by Christians. If you do the historical work and really dig down on that, the whole endeavor of science came about from, from people who were trusting God and looking at his universe and going, wow, how does this work? It's a wonderful way to know things. There's another way to know things, and that would be experience. So, and I can relate to scientific experimentation. You know, for example, if I take a bar of, of ivory soap and I, you know, put it one time in a kitchen sink full of water and it floats, and I go, oh, that's interesting, and I do it again and again and again and again, do it a hundred times, uh, guess what? You know, I'm going to conclude from that that, hey, ivory soap floats. Fair conclusion. And you can learn things that way and know it. Again, that can be a good way to observe God's universe. Why? Because God gave us an orderly universe. That's knowable. That's amazing. That's why science works. There's a third way to know truth, and that would be by divine revelation. And that is when God, who knows the truth, reveals to us his truth. Um, The reality is, is we would know nothing about God unless he revealed himself to us 
in his word, unless he revealed himself to us in Christ, the living word. And so we, we want to be clear about that, that God's revealed the truth and having the truth is a blessing. But when you know God's truth, you know what happens when you really come to him through Christ? You then not just kind of intellectually grasp it, you actually embody it. You know, what does Jesus say? You should know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Uh, Jesus tells us that he himself is the one who gives truth. He is the truth. And when we encounter that truth, God's divine promises, Christ's embodiment of the truth, it results in transformation within us, and we begin to grow. Now, granted, it's slow growth. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like, bam, done. Okay, no, it is ongoing. And yet... When we have the truth, the real Jesus then confronts us. He contradicts the way we live. We, uh, we try to maybe even dismiss things that we don't like, and Jesus brings it back. Hey, know what this is saying. Understand it. Grow. Possess the truth, but realize that when you grasp the truth, the truth then grasps you. And you know in a different way, and you embody it and live it out. And that's part of what John's been saying this whole time, right? One of the ways to know if you're a believer, certainly the promises of God. And certainly another way is the way your life is then transformed by God's promises and what he's, what he's told us. Um, there are times, though, when we, we would, you know, maybe not see that clearly or we kind of make a distinction in our minds between, well, I know this, but I'm not really doing it. Well, in, in the Old Testament especially, the idea of knowing means you're going to do. <laughs> if you don't do it, you don't know. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, even listening, if you've listened to God, technically speaking, that term for listen means to obey. But we'll, we'll make things up in our minds. There's a, there's a, a psalm that confronts that idea uh, Psalm 50, verses 20 and 21, it says, You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was like you. I will reprove you, reprove you and state the case in order, in order before your eyes. What was happening? You thought I was like you. You're making me into being someone that's like you. No. When we go to the scriptures, we find that our God, his thoughts are greater than our thoughts, as great as the heavens are above the earth. God is other than us. And we dare not try to make him into being like us. But his point here is that you have the truth already. You've got it. So if you've just come to Jesus recently, realize this, you have the truth. Yes, you're going to grow in it, you're going to learn more in it, but you've got it. And you don't need someone else coming along saying, oh, I've got something secret for you that only the elite can know. But, but it's so fortunate for you that I'm talking to you now. So you can be one of the elite too. And that is still happening today in various places at various times. Our college campuses have it going on a lot. To our college students, hey, be, beware of this. You know, there's plenty of PhDs sitting in classrooms and they're ready to make sport of Christians. They're kind of salivating at the point that you get into their class. Um, they're ready to tear you down. And there, there can be that moment of, you know, boldness maybe in the beginning of class and then the middle of the semester comes along and then pretty soon you're withering in your seat kind of going, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to go there. No, you've got the truth. 
You've got the truth, and it stands up to all of this. But you know what's interesting is God doesn't just give us the truth. There's something else that you have that's really important. You have his anointing. We find that in verse 20 and in verse 27. Look what he says. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Huh. Now, what is this anointing? Well, if we trace it through here, you'll also see it in verse 27. Notice, as for you, you have the anointing you receive from him abides in you. You have no need to anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and it's not a lie, just as it has taught you abide in him. So notice, this anointing is something that you've received, is something that dwells inside of you, and is something that teaches you the truth. So what's the anointing? The Holy Spirit. Clearly. What does the Holy Spirit do? He's the one that brings us from death to life. We are regenerated by his power. He then indwells us. He then empowers us. We, in him, because of his work in us, we are, are truly able to live life now with resurrection power from the age to come. And he also teaches us. So the Holy Spirit, he wrote this. And what he does then is he teaches us what this says. That's the anointing. Uh, it's literally, the, the, the term is charismata. And so, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of discussions about that word and are you charismatic or not or X, Y, or Z. Guess what? If you are someone who is in the word of God, trusting the spirit of God to teach you what the spirit wrote in the word of God, you are engaging uh, with him in light of the charismata. Um, you are being taught by him. And it's very, very important that we realize that um, because you don't have to seek another anointing. You already have it. You don't have to get some sort of second portion of the Holy Spirit or second blessing from the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you are baptized into the Spirit. By the Spirit, you're baptized into Christ. You're immersed into Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And so in contrast with the Gnostics that are saying, hey, you, know, you want true spiritual knowledge? Well, come over here. We'll teach you the secret stuff. He's assuring his believers, all of them, all of them, not merely the elite few, all were possessors of the anointing from God and the truth, connected with that, the truth that this anointing, the Spirit brings. And so when God speaks to us, he, we have the objective speaking from, from God in, in the word of truth, and then we also have the Spirit who wrote that truth, who illuminates that and teaches us that from the inside He's the one that turns on the lights in our eyes and in our minds and in our hearts so that we can receive the truth. He he tells us of the right path. He he calls us to to not deviate from that path. He strengthens us. He gives us the ability to be a witness for him in a dark world that, that we can follow our Heavenly Father, we can glorify him, that others can look on and see that, and they too can come to know him as they hear about this Jesus, the actual Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And so John is saying that you have what you need. You don't need these elitists coming along saying, yeah, but there's secret stuff that you need to know, and I'm going to give it to you. By the way, another thing for our college students, you know there's a really, really popular cult 
from Korea right now. And interestingly enough, I first heard about this when I was actually in Vietnam. Uh, it was kind of moving along. And I think it's called something along the lines of Shin Jo Chi um, of Jesus. That's it. And um, there's a, a leader who is very, very prominent. Um, and he's sort of this guy who, you, the way you inter- introduce these people typically is you're on campus and they come along and say, hey, you want to go to a Bible study? That's it. It's just an invitation to a Bible study. And so you're brought in. And, and the reason I know about this now is because I came back after that trip to Vietnam and I had some of our college students coming to me saying, hey, I ran into this thing. What's going on? And, uh, and uh, so we were talking about it. But yeah, so it's just, a, hey, it's a Bible study. Come on by. And they start to get into the Bible study. And, and the people are really warm and welcoming so if you're like a lonely college student, you're not connecting with people, oh, it's super appealing because these are really nice people. And they bring you in and they embrace you and they, they help you and they do these things. And then eventually you start to see some things like everything in the Bible is a metaphor. Every, it's all metaphor. And the only one who knows how to unlock those metaphors is this leader in Korea. That's awfully convenient, isn't it? Essentially, you can make it say anything you want at that point. And he does. Uh, and um, at this point, he's, he's claiming to actually be the Messiah. So again, you can't know, though. You can't know what this means unless you come to them. And you would think that this is something that would just pass away in the dirt. No, it's not. It's gaining popularity. Uh, we've gotten a few phone calls now at the office of people within the cult wanting to talk. <laughs> um, so their outreach efforts are growing. And um, young people, beware. Be aware of that. You have his anointing. You have his truth. And finally, we will conclude with this, you also have eternal life. You have eternal life already. It's something that is given, and we see that clearly in verse 25. Look, this is the promise he himself made. By the way, that's emphatic. Who made? Jesus made this promise. He himself made to us eternal life. This is life that is everlasting. Do you know how many people are trying to find eternal life right now? Uh, all, All the big ones. So Facebook, Google, Amazon, they've got departments strictly just set up with just oodles of money. I can't even tell you the numbers of zeros. I don't know, millions, whatever, billions. I'm not sure. I can't keep track of that. Um, the, eventually, the zeros just confuse me. I don't know what it means anymore. But that amount of money going into how do we prolong human life? Because we want to get rid of this death thing. Because this death thing is just so inconvenient, really, isn't it? I mean, people, we've got things to do. Dying just kind of gets in the way. So here they are researching this. And again, what do we find here? You already have it if you're in Jesus. You've got it. Life that doesn't end. And by the way, this eternal life starts right now. When you were placed into Christ, you were placed into his death, his burial. You share in his resurrection. You share in his ascension. You share in his glory right now. And we need to live in light of that. 
Um, this is not just some sort of far off, kind of uh, pie in the sky kind of a promise. This is a tangible reality given to believers. And so this is the promise he himself made to us, eternal life. The life that's shared by the Father and the Son. The life that was manifest to us in Jesus, we're told, that we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. The life that was proclaimed to us in the gospel. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3. The life that's promised to all who believe because Jesus is the Christ. That's only possible because he is the Christ. He assures us of our standing with God. He is the one that brought us from death to life and we have it now and we will have it unto eternity. Death has been defeated already. Jesus rose to show that. John's going to tell us later in this very letter, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has life. So brothers and sisters, let's be sure to beware of the liars. But let's also be sure to have confidence in Christ. In the face of all the ways the world is trying to deceive, we can walk with discerning confidence and we'll be able to spot the liars, the antichrists that abound in this age. They're going to depart, they're going to deny, and they're going to deceive. And we can rest in confidence in Christ because we have the truth, we have his anointing, and we have eternal life. And the apostle now is going to move on to fully anchor the confidence of God's children in the fact that Jesus is the one who has brought us into a relationship with the Father. We've actually been adopted by God. And that adoption changes everything. And for that, we'll have to come back together next week. So let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you, again, would work these things in and through our lives. We pray, Lord, that our confidence would abound in Christ because of the truth you've given us, because of the spirit who dwells in us, because of the eternal life that is already ours. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in such a way through the week ahead that others would come to know you as well. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.